What an opportunity we have this morning to just once again revel in the Word of God and to think about all that He has for us. And as we come to our time in the Word this morning, I want to begin by taking us to a few passages that we have studied in the past, partly because I want to solidify in our hearts and minds what the Apostle Peter is saying to us in 2 Peter chapter 3. So take your Bibles and turn in them with me to Colossians. Colossians, Paul's epistle to the believers in Colossae. Of course, the Apostle Paul is very thankful for this little church. He had planted it on one of his missionary journeys. They have a strong faith, he says. And their faith continually shows itself to others around by how they love one another. And they are living that way because they have hope. They are living out love toward one another because they have hope. It is not a hope like the world's kind of hope. It isn't some kind of human-made wishful thinking that they are holding on to, they have a strong faith. It isn't that they are trying to convince themselves that things will be better as if they have some kind of mind over matter. If I think the good things, then good things will happen kind of exercise. No, this is real hope in the Christian. In fact, Paul says it is hope in the gospel. You notice what he says in verses 1 through 5. He's writing to the saints and the faithful brethren in Christ, verse 2, at Colossae, and he says, Grace and peace to you from God our Father. We give thanks to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have in all the saints because of the hope laid up for us in heaven. In other words, they, they are exercising their life in the way that they are living through this love, and they are living that way as they walk in this faith because they have hope in what they know to be true about heaven. Now, why does this gospel offer that Paul is talking about here with the Colossian believers, why does this gospel offer and bring that kind of hope? Well, because of verses 13 and 14 that Paul says, for he delivered us from the domain of darkness. He transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The reason that the Colossian believers had this kind of hope in the things of heaven is because they had been transferred from the domain of sin into the domain of Christ. They were now new creatures in Christ through the doctrine of deliverance. They had been transferred by God, by His grace, through faith in Christ, into the kingdom of His Son, in which they had redemption, which is the forgiveness of their sins. So this is a great hope. This is a hope that overrides difficulty and struggle. 
This is a hope that doesn't cower in the face of trouble. Every Christian has struggles. Every Christian has difficulty as they walk by faith. In fact, the writer to those in Colossae is the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was no stranger to difficulty. Difficulty in every kind of way. Difficulty that brought physical pain and difficulty that brought even more so emotional pain. But Paul never lost hope. He was, as he said to the Corinthians, cast down but never crushed. And he wanted the believers in Colossae to be the same way. And they could. And they would be that way. They would continue to be, as we have entitled our entire series, steadfast in the faith. Their faith would end well if they remembered who Christ was. And so you notice over in chapter 3, Colossians chapter 3, Paul says to them, if you have been then raised up with Christ. He's not asking the question as to, is your faith real? He's just saying, since that's the reality, since you are alive with Christ, since you have been raised up with Christ, then keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. Because, or for, you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Isn't it interesting? You've died. Consider yourself already dead. You've died with Christ. Paul says, listen, the doctrine of hope has practical implications for your life, especially in the midst of difficulty, but your entire being is to be oriented to Christ. Your entire personhood and every thought and every action is to be oriented to Christ. And there he says in verse 2, therefore set your mind on things above. A little phrase, set your mind, means this. Every thought, every thought that you have, even the mundane thoughts, the, the thoughts of what am I going to eat today, have your mind set on the things of glory. Think that way, the way you think, the way you process information, the information that you follow, the information that you act upon, the information that affects you, all that is to be the things of Christ and not the things of the world. We are so affected today by the thinking of the world. How the world processes information becomes... So often how we process information and we are not to be that way. Apostle Paul says we are to have information, the way we process information, the way we act upon information set on the things of Christ, the things above. Notice Paul goes on to say, for you've died. Therefore, the implication is this, when our minds and our pursuits are on 
the things of Christ, when they are on the things rather than the earth, we have real hope. When our minds are set on the things of the earth and the way the earth thinks, then our hope is diminished and we don't long for heaven to come. That's why Paul says, listen, you have to remember this. You've already died. You've already died. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. And just that simple reality ought to shock us into remembering this very hope because the fact is for us to be removed from the position that we have in Christ would be, according to the phraseology that Paul used, would be for God to not exist at all. You are hidden with Christ in God. And so for us to be removed from that reality, for us to be insecure in who we are in Christ, for us to have any kind of fret over the things of this life, is to say, in essence, then God doesn't exist. Because if I'm in Christ in God, then what can get to me? Paul said it to the Romans, right? Can death... Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing. Life, death, it really doesn't matter. It cannot separate me from the love of Christ. And when I understand that, then I have hope. And when I remember who I am in Christ, that I am dead to this world, then I will anticipate what is to come. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed. I'll be revealed with him in glory. So what is Paul ultimately saying? Paul is saying, listen, look forward to the new heaven and the new earth. Live in such a way that you look forward to that, that you live in light of that. Now here's what I often see today. The reason that many a Christian is miserable today that many a Christian is downtrodden today is because far too often our anticipation and our drive in life is for the here and now. It is for the next day on this earth. It is for our next event. It is for our next year. It is for our next week. It is for whatever is here and now rather than the glory to be revealed when we are with Christ in His glory. Heaven should be our greatest hope. Like Paul says in verse 5, Therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to these things, to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, greed, which all amounts to idolatry. Heaven should be our greatest hope. Why? Because it is the home of our Savior. This is what makes heaven so heavenly is because Christ dwells in the glories with the Father. And since we know Him by faith and since we are in God through being with Christ, it is our true home also. We are to long for it. We are to anticipate it. 
We are to desire it more than this world. It's only the true Christian that has the hope of glory. And in heaven, by the way, everything is new. In heaven, everything is new. So with that in your mind, with this reality of newness on your mind, turn over to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21. Jesus said in John chapter 14, when he was about to die, do not be troubled. That's what he told the disciples. Do not be troubled. It was a troubling time. The world was chaotic. Everything was against Christ. They were about to crucify him in just a few hours. And he says to his disciples, don't be troubled. I go to prepare a place for you. Paul, to the Colossian believers, says to to the believers there, listen, don't be troubled, anticipate the glory of heaven. Revelation 21, immediately following the great white throne judgment, at the end of time, we are introduced to the glories of heaven. And if we could sum it up in just one word, the the word would be that, new. Everything is new. Everything is changed. Notice what John says in verse 1 of chapter 21. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. So John says, I saw, and what he sees concerning our future dwelling place is that it's all new. Everything is new, and it's all eternal, notice. And the first earth passed away, and there is no longer sea. So what John is writing about is what the theologians have labeled as the eternal state. This is, the, this is the final place of glory for those who know Jesus Christ. The final judgment has taken place in, verse, in chapter 20, verse 11 and following. The proverbial end of earth is in the mirror and the new era comes. So what do we find here in these final chapters of Revelation? Well, what we find is this glorious picture of what we can anticipate for the longest part of our existence as Christians. Let me say that again. What John is showing us is the reality of what you and I can anticipate, what Paul was telling to the Colossian believers to anticipate, what Jesus was telling the disciples on the night that he before he dies what Jesus is saying to them and what all of us can anticipate for the longest part of our Christianity the life we live here the physical life that you and I walk through each and every day on this earth is temporal And in comparison to our life to come in the glories of heaven, this is the shortest part of it. 
James chapter 4, verse 14 describes life here this way. Life is but a vapor. Life is but a vapor. It's here today. It's gone tomorrow. But our life in heaven is new and it's forever. Let me just read this so that we have it in our ears. God showing the Apostle John the glory of heaven. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer sea. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and He shall dwell among them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself shall be among them. And He shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall no longer be death, there shall no longer be mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. He who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. And he who overcomes shall inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and the unbelieving, and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now, this is an incredible scene. This is an absolutely shocking and stunning scene. And I, I just want to highlight for us four overall features that John brings forth as he's writing. And I pray that they will cause us to hope all the more. We're going to get to Second Peter this morning right at the end, but, I, but I, I, it's important for us to go through this because of what Peter is telling us in Second Peter 3. The first thing that John reveals to us is what I've said already. Heaven is completely a new creation. A new creation. For I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away. If you ever wondered where you are going to live in the final future, don't wonder anymore. It is not going to be on this terrestrial ball. It is not going to be here. It will not be on this earth. It will be on a new earth in a new heaven. I said last week the word new here is the Greek word kainos. It means totally new in character, totally new in every way. In other words, it's not only new in 
time in the sense of the history of time as time marches on as God has created time it's not only new in time in other words the very next thing as if it was chronological in that way no it is completely different from all that it was before that's the idea totally new in all its character you say why is that necessary why couldn't God just refashion this Why is it that it has to be gone? Well, because God said it would. Notice what he says. The first heaven and the first earth passed away. That's why the new heaven and the new earth are completely new. Because the first heaven and the first earth passed away. And the phraseology and language of that very phrase don't allow for anything to be just massively refurbished. This isn't refurbished language. This is destruction language and new in a categorical way, in every way. It's no renovation of the old. It is completely new in every way. By the way, that word used for passed away, it's one word in the original language. It's very interesting. It's used some 31 times in the New Testament, and each time it is used, there is some kind of action that takes place with a thing or with a person, and they're completely taken away from the observer. So when it says they passed away, they're completely removed, they're gone. It's, it's not a vestige of the old, refashioned in a new way. It's completely gone in every way. So they're out of sight. That's the wording that John is using here in Revelation 21. And of course, verse 4 says, first things have passed away. You notice that at the end. The first things have passed away. In other words, the first things, the first earth, the first heaven, the first things, the first creation have passed away. They've gone out of sight. So this creation is all new. God only gives us one physical feature, by the way, about this new earth. Yet it has major impact if we think about it. Notice verse 1, he says, and there is no sea. That's the only physical, geographical kind of feature that we get about the new earth. There is no sea. Now, I like the oceans. The oceans of this earth are beautiful. I love to see a crystal blue sea, and yet the new earth will not have it. There will be no sea. Why? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us, but we can certainly kind of draw some sanctified speculation about why it might not be there. Probably one of the reasons is because life on this earth is so connected with water. In other words, without the hydrological cycle, whereby which water is evaporated from the oceans, taken up into the clouds, moved over the the earth, and then disseminating that water onto the land so that it grows things and rain falls, as God says, on both the just and the unjust. Without that, there is no life sustained on this earth. So to say the least, at least at the very thoughtfulness of water and the use of water. Water plays a major role in the ecology and or the physiology of our life on earth. 
water also played a major point in the judgment of the earth. As God judged the earth with water, as we learned in 2 Peter chapter 3, as Paul reiterates, the flood. But in the new earth, all the marks of God's judgment are gone. There is no curse upon the earth. Now, that doesn't mean that the new earth will have no water at all just because it has no sea. In fact, if you go over to chapter 22 and verse 1, you notice and it says, and he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And it was in the middle of its street. And on either side of the river was the tree of life bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nation. So right there you have water and you have some kind of time being kept because the tree is bearing different fruit every month. Notice also in chapter 22, verse 3, and there shall no longer be any curse. All the vestiges of the curse, all the realities of what God placed upon the earth by way of judgment in Genesis chapter 3 all the way through, and all the vestiges of judgment throughout the history of time as God has carried them out on the earth by His sovereign hand will no longer be there. There is no curse. So at our present time, the sea is essential for life here. The sea is a continual reminder, and the rain is a reminder of the very promise of God that He would never flood the earth because we see the rainbow when it rains. But the new heaven and new earth, God is creating an entirely new ecology that is completely different from that which we now know. Will not be like we know it now. So the first thing we see is it's a new creation, a completely new creation. But secondly, John says that there's going to be this new capital, this new central city. Verse 2, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. So with the new heaven and the new earth having been created, we get another feature about the permanent dwelling on which we're going to dwell for eternity. A new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Jesus told his disciples in John 14, right? I go to prepare a place for you. This is the place. The imagery really is wonderful when you look at it because I think you and I have all been to a wedding before. We've all been to the place where a man and a woman join together in marriage. And we all know the beauty of a bride when she walks into the room on that very day. Everybody stands and we all take pictures and we're all at awe of how wonderful she looks. She's adorned with all the splendor of a bride. She's pure. She's ready to be joined to her groom on that day. That's the picture that John uses here. The city for which it is said, 
of Abraham in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 10, that he looked for a city which has its foundations, whose builder is and maker is God. This is it. This is the city that came from heaven made ready. It came from God. This is the city that every true saint who has faith in Jesus Christ, who has ever left home, left country, whatever, as Hebrews chapter 11, verse 16 says, He, that is God, has prepared for them a city. God has prepared for us a city, and the same assurance that is given to those in Hebrews is the same assurance that John is giving to us here, to every believer of all time. In fact, Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 22 says it this way, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. In other words, just being in Christ and in God is, is as if in the mind and heart of God, we're already there. And so this is the city that is the answer to all the prophecies and all the, that the Old Testament and the New Testament says. It is in this city that God intends to live and how we were created to live. Verse 3 says, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and He shall dwell among them. John sees this capital city and it's adorned as a bride. And it contains all of the redeemed of all of the ages who ultimately are the bride that the Father gives to the Son. So it's completely new. The new Jerusalem, the holy city, new Jerusalem, it says. Not only is heaven new, not only is earth new, but the holy city is new. And so we get this first glimpse of heaven through the eyes of the Apostle John. And we see the appearance of the new heaven and the new earth and the appearance of this new capital city. This is, beloved, paradise regained. This is paradise regained. And then thirdly, John says we, we, we can anticipate a new communion with God. A new communion. Verses 3 and 4, I heard a loud voice saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and He shall dwell among them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself shall be among them, and He shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall no longer be death. There shall no longer be mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. I don't want us to miss the word in verse 3, behold. Behold. That means pay attention. Listen up. Don't miss this. This is important. When you see that word in Scripture, listen up. Pull yourself up. Because we don't want to miss it. God wants to emphasize something. Something amazing. And what is amazing? John says, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. What is so amazing is that God is dwelling with men. Now think about it with me. 
Because in the Garden of Eden, before the fall, before sin ever entered into the heart of man, when he fell and rebelled against God, before any of that happened, God enjoyed full communion with his creation. God had full communion with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve walked in the garden, Genesis tells us, in the cool of the day with God. They fully communed with God. But then sin interrupted the whole process. That communion was broken. Once that happened, it was only by grace, a grace that was based upon the sacrifice through the shedding of the blood, that man and God would have any kind of communion together, any kind of fellowship together. And in the Old Testament, that only happened once a year on the Day of Atonement by the high priest. So it was only one man who got to have a momentary communion with God, and only that through the sacrifice of an animal for the sake of the nation. In fact, Exodus 25, verse 8, God says to Moses and to the people, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. You see, it was always God's desire to dwell with his people. It was always on the heart of God, but once again, sin got in the way. In the Old Testament, the Jewish people disobeyed God, and their sin brought upon them disaster after disaster after disaster. God meeting out his wrath upon them because they rejected him over and over and over again. So that by the time you get to Ezekiel's prophecy in Ezekiel chapters 9 and 10, the glory of God departs the temple. God no longer dwelling with his people anymore. By the time you get to the New Testament, for God to draw near to sinful men, He had to come in the person of Christ. That's exactly what the New Testament says. John 1, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. That's the word here. The word for dwelt in John chapter 1 is the word for tabernacle. Here it's, it's God tabernacled with men. God desired, tab- God desired fellowship with his creation, and so came Christ. Christ, God incarnate, the God-man, Emmanuel, God with us, as it says in Isaiah's prophecy. And instead of communion, what did man give Christ? They gave him a cross. Instead of communing with God, they once again wanted nothing to do with God. But God, through the sacrifice of His Son, even though it came at the hands and by the providence of God, through the hands of His own creation, God completed redemption. He completed the forgiveness of sin for those who would believe by faith in His Son. So God can now have communion on a permanent basis. And so what do we see here? We see here in Revelation 21, the purpose of God in creation finally being completed fully. This is God now dwelling in the tabernacle on the new heaven 
or in the new heaven, on the new earth, dwelling with His people. And we, through the words of John, are called upon to wonder at this amazing truth. Behold, God dwelling with men forever. What will it look like? What does it mean that God will dwell with us? What what are the implications of these words in reality? Well, let me let me just say this: it's not going to be like here, right? That's rather obvious. It's not going to be like here. And there are several statements that describe that reality. Notice first, the actual place of God is there, right? God is among men. He shall dwell among them. He shall dwell among them. Currently, we have God the Spirit in us as believers in Jesus Christ, but God the Father and God the Son are in the heavens. All that's going to change in the new heaven, new earth. All that's going to change when we're glorified in our glorified bodies, when Christ is revealed as Paul said to the Colossian believers, when we are in the eternal state, the entire Godhead will live with us. He will not be like it was in the days of Israel in the temple, where God dwelt in the tabernacle and one could enter in only one time a year through blood. It will not be like that. He will be among us. Notice it says, God Himself shall be among them. The end of verse 3. You know what that says to all of us who believe? It says that all of us who know God through Christ will have continual access and communion with God in a tangible way. We can go into the presence of God in a tangible way and not be consumed Right now, we have access to God. We've been given access to God through Christ. The veil has been torn. We can enter the holy place. We, we talk to God in prayer. We go to Him and He hears us. But there in heaven, it will be new. Our communion with Him will not be through prayers. It will be you and I talking with God. He will be among us. Notice what it says secondly. We shall be His people. Verse 3. He shall dwell among us and they shall be His people. That's the believer. In other words, the possession of God is then realized in the glories of heaven. All the terms of the promises of God for His children will be realized because we actually are His people. It's not just Israel that is His people, those who believe from the nation of Israel through whom the gospel came to all of us. It's not just the church age people, but now all of God's chosen are together as His people and the inheritance of Christ is now realized. That's what John's trying to get across. And he says, thirdly, 
not only is God there, not only is the realization of being His fully realized, but also the protection of God is there. Notice verse 4, He shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. We could even describe it this way. And God will wipe out all tears. Wipe out all tears. In other words, there is no crying in glory. There's no reason for crying in glory. That's probably a better way to say it. There's no crying in glory because there's no reason for crying in glory. There's no reason for tears. Certainly we cry here for a whole host of reasons. The majority are from painful things. Things tied to our emotions. We are very emotional beings as God has created us. Things are difficult to take. So the picture here is that our loving, tender, compassionate Father, God, His protection is for us in every way. That means in the glories of heaven, beloved, when when Paul was saying, keep your things on the things above, we are to think about the reality that in the glories of heaven, there will be nothing sad. There will be nothing lacking for us, which we go, boy, I wish I would have that. There's nothing wrong in heaven. There is nothing to cry about in heaven. No disappointment, no loss, no remorse, no trace of any vestige of the old creation, only joy. That's the reality. Nothing else. Only joy. God's presence is there. Our possession of Christ is there. Our caring protector is there. And then finally John writes, the provision of God is there. Notice what he says, and there shall no longer be death. No longer be death. Nobody ever dies. I'm glad of that. I'm glad of that. In fact, back in chapter 20, verse 14, he says, and death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. What did that tell us when it was the judgment of God taking care of death? It tells us that death dies an eternal death. Death is gone forever. And of course, that's why John could say further, there shall no longer be mourning or crying or pain. There's none of that, nothing to be sad about, nothing to agonize over. The older I get now, the more my body hurts. The harder and more painful it is just to wake up in the morning. The eternal state, beloved, all that will be gone. There'll be none of that. No more pain at all. Why? Why is it going to be like that? John tells us. Because the first things have passed away. The first things have passed away. 
Isn't it interesting that in our day and age, we've even adopted that language when someone dies. They've passed away. And that means they've gone off the radar. They're no longer going to be seen. It's totally different. They've passed away. This is why everything will be different in new heaven and new earth, because it's totally passed away. Sin and death and sorrow and crying and pain and all of that, all that is part of this first creation, all that is part of the here and now will be gone. But in heaven, in the new creation, old things are passed away. Everything is categorically new. God puts his assuring approval on it in verses 5 through 8. And he who sits on the throne says, Behold, again, pay attention, I'm making all things new. Don't doubt it. Don't wonder too long about it. Don't try to rethink it all. Don't try to reevaluate how it can be remade. No, I'm making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, It is done. God decrees it. It's as good as if it's been accomplished already. Why? Because he's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. Therefore, I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. But for the cowardly, verse 8, for the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, the immoral persons, sorcerers, idolaters, and liars, Things aren't going to be so well. Those who overcome, they are sons. We share in the same standing with the Father as Christ does. We are heirs with Christ. We are sons of God. But for those who reject Christ, the cowardly, that equals fearful. In other words, believing in Christ is too much of a risk. For the unbelieving, those who follow the seen rather rather than the unseen, the abominable, probably a description of sexual religion, worshiping sexuality, murderers, those who take life in an unjustified way, immoral persons, Sexual sin of any kind, habitually. Sorcerers, magical arts, those who talk to demons and spirits, devoted to those kinds of things. They're not going to be in the glories of heaven. Idolaters, those who worship anything in the place of God, giving greater value to the things that aren't God rather than God Himself. And liars. All liars. Not just some of them. The liars. Those who are false. False with the truth. False with words, deeds. All of them will spend eternity in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. The second death, he says. What a contrast. What a contrast for you and I. What a contrast for how we are to live. We can anticipate great things. Why? Because of Christ. 
He is our hope of glory. And so this morning, we, we want to remember Christ. We want to anticipate Christ. We want to focus on Christ. And we anticipate glory with Him. So for our remaining few minutes, turn over to 2 Peter chapter 3. Remember what the Apostle Peter said in verse 11. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way. What things? All of those first things. The present heavens and earth by His Word are being reserved for fire. Kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men, verse 7 says. All of those things, this place that we live, the ungodly people, those who reject Jesus Christ. And then he says in verse 14, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, there's Colossians chapter 3, anticipating the things of Christ, looking to the things above, being ready. Therefore, since you Look for these things. Be diligent. Your life is to be affected by this reality, by the fact that you believe in Jesus Christ and you're walking in faith in Jesus Christ and you're looking to the things above that will come when Christ is revealed and all that Revelation 21 has said. Since you know all of these things, be diligent. That's a word we've heard before already. Remember back in chapter 1, verse 5? Since you're a believer in Christ, since you've been granted everything you need for life and godliness through a knowledge of Him, since it's by the power of God that all of this has happened, for by these He's granted you precious and magnificent promises. What's the promise? This promise of a new heaven and a new earth. This promise of life with Christ. This promise that what is to come. All of that, that you are now a partaker of divine nature. You've escaped. You've been transferred out of the domain of darkness. You've escaped the corruption in the world by lust. Those things aren't to affect you like they used to affect you. You have the power to overcome those things by way of living and by way of thinking and by way of talking and acting. Now for this reason, applying all diligence, there it is. Make every effort, put all the effort in that you can in your faith to supply moral excellence and moral excellence knowledge and in your knowledge, self-control in your self-control, perseverance, perseverance, godliness, godliness, brotherly kindness, brotherly kindness, love, because if these qualities are yours and increasing, that's, that's sanctification, that's the process of walking by faith. We're growing more and more and more in a greater reality of Christ's likeness than they render you neither useless nor unfruitful. But if you lack these... You're either blind, either you're not saved, or you're just short-sighted because you've forgotten what you have been purified from. So be diligent. Check yourself. Check your heart. Make certain His calling and choosing of you, verse 10. 
for as long as you live this way, you'll never stumble. He doesn't mean you'll never sin. What he's saying is you'll never be unsteadfast in your faith. Your faith will stand strong. You want to know what held the martyrs to the start, to the sticks as they were being lit? This very reality. This is how it goes. And so over in chapter 3, this is what Peter is saying. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, And you be found by Him in peace. Peace. So not only should we be characterized by the anticipation of the coming of Christ, but we should be in a peaceful condition when He comes. We should be in a peaceful condition when He comes. Since you look for these things, what things? The, the day of God, the day of eternity, the new heavens and new earth, the eternal state, what is to come in glory, all that is awaiting us in the presence of God forever and ever and ever. Since we look to those things, then we should be diligent, making every effort to be found by Him in peace. The diligence means every effort. Put every effort into being found by Him in peace. So when Jesus comes and He exposes everything we've done in our lives, whether it be good or whether it be wood, hay, and stubble burned up, Second Corinthians 5 says, we're going to be found by Him. That's the idea. It's like coming day when Christ comes and everything we've ever done on this earth will be recompensed. This isn't, this isn't judgment in the great white throne judgment because that's not happening to believers. Christ paid that penalty. We are secure there, but this is, this is the rewards time. This is the recompense time for good deeds or those things which are burned up, the wood, hay, and stubble, as Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians. And since we are anticipating all of this, it should be that when he finds us, that he finds us having been diligent to live in a condition of peace. What is Peter saying? Well, he's saying to us that, that Christ is to find us enjoying in our life the peace of God right now, no matter what's happening, no matter what's taking place, we are to be enjoying the peace of God, living with a personal peace of mind, the peace that comes from a strong faith in Christ. Similar to what Paul said to the Philippians, right? And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your mind and heart in Christ Jesus. You make your request known to God. You trust God. You walk by faith in God and the peace of God. I think this is what Peter is describing here. The kind of peace that makes us free from anxiety and fear. The kind of peace that is free from worry about the future and what might come. It's the kind of peace that has no fear regarding the day of the Lord. Regarding when Jesus comes. Why? Why? Because in the judgment of Christ, we are free 
kind of peace that has no fear regarding world conditions or whatever because we know we're at peace with God. See, it's truly the peace that is beyond human comprehension. It's the peace of God. We are to be those, beloved, who have no fear who love the appearing of Christ because in us there is no fear and no anxiety. Ask yourself this morning, is that, is that the case for me? If Jesus was coming tomorrow night, what would it be like for me in my own heart and life in the next 24 hours? Would it be at peace with me? Or would I be running around, scurrying around like an ant out of an anthill, trying to clean up all the things that I know are wrong, all the attitudes, all the sinful actions, all the things I'm willfully doing now that I shouldn't be doing, which would cause me to shrink back at His appearing? You see, we're not called to create a perfect world here so that we desire to be here, to be in this fallen place as a fallen sinful person? No. Since we know Christ and we know that Christ is coming, Paul is saying, since you know these things and you look for these things, then you should be diligent through your holy conduct, through your godliness, as he said in the previous verses, verse 11, you ought to be people in holy conduct and godliness be diligent to be found in Him at peace, to be at complete peace. We should be those people who cry out, even so, Lord Jesus, come. Come. We're ready for You to come. Come. And we should have a fearlessness in our hearts because we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that all is well in our hearts. All is well with us since we know Christ and are obeying Christ. Peter says, as you anticipate the coming of Christ, you should be living in anticipation of it, and you should be living in a condition of perfect peace. Are you? Are you at peace? If you're here without Jesus Christ, there's no way you can be at peace because Christ is not coming as your Savior. He's coming as your judge. I don't know anyone who stands before the judge at peace. And so you have to ask yourself, am I at peace? If I'm not at peace, if anxiety and worry and fear and the things that concern what is going on in this earth are on our mind and our heart 24-7, 365, we're concerned about all that, then what do we need to do? We need to turn to Jesus. We need to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We need to repent of that sin. That's what it is. Sin. When we do that, the peace of God will guard our heart and our mind in Christ. This is what Peter is saying because the earth comes along and says, no, this really isn't going to happen. 
all of this is just mumbo jumbo. It's all a bunch of nonsense. It's all a bunch of, of wishful thinking. It all is a crutch for those who are weak intellectually. They need this, this masterful story, this mythological story about Jesus and he's coming back. But come on, really? Where is the promise of his coming anyway? They manufacture all kinds of lies, indulging their own flesh, despising authority. These are those who speak arrogant words of vanity to entice your fleshly desires. Peter says, don't be duped by all of that. Listen to what God says. Listen to the truth of what God says. Since you know these things and since you look for these things, and be diligent to be found in him, by him in peace. We don't have time to go into it this morning, but you notice spotless and blameless are the aspects of that peace. When you're spotless, when you're blameless, when you're doing the right thing, there's no sense for any kind of anxiety, any kind of fear. Even if they would kill you, it doesn't matter. We're to exemplify our Savior Jesus Christ who stood before his accusers entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. It's not what man says, it's what God says. It doesn't say you're to live this way diligently to be found by man in peace. No, it says by him. You're not in peace, beloved. The only way to have peace is through Christ. Fix your eyes on Jesus Christ. Next week we'll finish this up. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the encouragement that it brings us when we hear from you about all that we have in Christ the great inheritance that is ours through our Savior, the joy that we have by knowing Him, what You have brought to our lives. This world is not our home. We are aliens and strangers here now, but we are not aliens and strangers in ages to come. Lord, help us be diligent now to be found by You in peace not trusting in ourselves, not trusting in the things of this earth, not trusting in what may happen or what could happen and the things like that, but let's just trust in your word. For you are true, you are right. And if all the world goes one direction and we are standing alone, may we be satisfied in that because to stand with you alone by ourselves is better than to stand with the world and not have you. Thank you for the confidence that we can have in the midst of the turmoil and struggle of life because we know Jesus Christ. May we live that out each and every day for your glory. To the praise of our Savior, Jesus Christ, whose name we pray. Amen.